0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Dr. Zoe Ayers, who's going to share from her new book, Managing Your Mental Health During Your PhD, A Survival Guide.
1: Welcome to the show, Zoe. Hello. Uh, Thanks so much for having me on today.
2: I am so glad you're here and that we get to talk about your book. It is a book I wish that I had had when I was in grad school, and I'm pleased to be able to alert listeners to this new book. Thank you. Oh, yes. Before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself?
1: Yeah, um, I always dread these questions when I'm asked to summarize who I am, Um, but I guess... um, And again, I'm gonna do exactly what I tell other people not to do and lead with my education background. Um, But yeah, I'm a a scientist by background. Um, I have a PhD in chemistry. Um, Before that I did a whole host of other things. So I trained in analytical science before that and I did forensic science before that. Um, And so you might think, well, why is someone who is a scientist writing a book about managing your mental health during your PhD Um, but for me my mental health um, was something that was really important to me during my PhD and I really want to write this book because of that so um, I guess that's kind of what brings me here today really.
2: I'm curious about what led you into this field how did you hear about it how did you know that science was for you?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I think like when I when I first started um, thinking that science was for me was getting a perfume kit as a child. Um, And so like I was making my own perfumes in the garden and kind of like crushing flowers and trying to get the scent out of them. Um, and I remember like my mum saying to me, oh, you know, this is, this is science. Um, and like, I guess thinking back, maybe it's a little bit gender stereotype to be been given a perfume kit, not like a microscopy kit or something. Um, but it really got me into kind of thinking about chemicals. And then as I progressed through school, um, I wanted to be a whole host of things so I haven't always wanted to be a scientist I think I you know archaeology was something that I wanted to do at one point Uh, a lawyer was something I wanted to do at another point um but I think it was some really great teachers um as I was moving towards um applying for universities that really encouraged me to stay in science um and you know I love science now I think exploring the world around us and and learning things about what's going on I think is just so fascinating to me.
2: Were there any particular professors who encouraged you to go on for the PhD? How did you find your way to that path?
1: Um, yeah, so um, so uh, in the UK, like typically, we do an undergraduate degree and then we do a master's degree, um, and then we do a PhD. So, like I know that differs around the world, but a master's is kind of like a, a pre-step to doing a PhD in the UK, typically. Um, and when I was doing my master's, my PhD supervisor, an amazing woman called Julie um, she. Um, I should say, Professor Julie McPherson, um, she was doing some amazing work on diamond sensing technologies, um, growing diamonds in her lab, and um, actually then using those to do environmental monitoring. Um, and I just remember hearing about the work that she was doing and thinking, gosh, I really want to go and do that. Um, and you know, she's been my greatest champion ever since, really.
2: You tell us in the book that your first gen
1: Yes, yes, I am. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's a really interesting thing to be the first person to, to go and experience university life and um, like, it's a really interesting thing for me in comparison to some of the people around me, um, particularly when I was doing my PhD, where people kind of understood the language that was going on or understood what a grant proposal was, or, um, you know, just had the, like, it's almost like just having the code or terminology to understand the world, the world around you and what's going on. And like, I just didn't have that straight away. And it took me, I think, a bit of a bigger learning curve than some other people, um, in that sense you
2: take us through a lot of barriers in the book to supporting mental health in the academic environment and one of them that you listed was the pervasive classism did you experience that? yeah
1: I so so there's a couple of examples um, that I can think of so like I mean, and and a lot of classism I think is kind of like more general in terms of what I experienced so like it's almost like not one specific example but kind of like a constant chip away uh, particularly like coming from like say so my my dad worked um in the wood docks for a long time um like um effectively shifting wood from um container ships um until eventually he he went into into sales um and like for me like you know, him not going to university didn't necessarily like change my you know it didn't affect my drive to go to university because my parents were very encouraging of me going to university but when I got to university and found again that there was an expectation of what um what an academic looked like and so perhaps I didn't look like those academics I think that affected me in ways that I didn't expect um particularly given that I was always like really quite um I guess I succeeded quite well at school um, and so I never really had limiting factors that were external to me until that point um, so yeah I guess things like my accent um, were things that I worried about like I had like a quite a, a broad accent at the time I think that you probably still hear it, hear it a twang of it I don't really sound like a I know the typical British accent and maybe I do to to people external from from the UK, but I think I used to worry about it quite a lot um, because I felt like if I didn't speak right, then maybe I didn't fit in.
2: You've shared a bit about what inspired you to write this book. Writing a book is a huge prospect and writing a book about something that you feel so strongly about is a sometimes as draining as it is rewarding. What inspired you to write the book and to actually then go ahead and write the book? Because sometimes those are two different things. <laughs>
1: but yeah, so it was really interesting. Like, so I'd always like had it in my mind that I wanted to write the book um so I went to my university bookshop um when I was particularly struggling with my mental health because I was looking for a resource that would help me um and I got there and I found all these like study guides and things and I was looking around and and like managing stress during the exam period was there and things like that and I looked around and I could not find a book that was about the the challenges that PhD students face during PhD study and so Um, in my head at the time, I was like, there really should be a book on this. Um, I don't know if I really connected the dots that I would be the person that would write the book at that time. Um, I don't think I was in the right place to even consider writing a book. But I think once I got much better or in a much better place with my mental health, I think um, it started to kind of form in my head that I wanted to write the book and I started having a few notes and thinking about what each of the chapters would be um and also just like I you know spend a lot of time on social media and that kind of like those conversations made me think you know consolidate my thoughts around some of the things I wanted to talk about in the book Um, and then you know serendipity um and I guess a a horrendous accident where I tripped over and broke my broke my leg uh, meant that I was I was effectively left with taking three months off work for recovery um but during those three months I couldn't do a lot um and it was in those three months that I wrote the book so um it gave me some time outside of a really busy schedule that I probably would never have had otherwise so whilst I'm not particularly happy that I broke my leg um I think it it gave me a bit of a A catalyst to get where I am today and haven't written it so
2: you let us know in the book that while you are a scientist and an excellent researcher and someone with a lot of lived experience about what you're writing about you're not a psychiatrist and you're not a doctor but It's clear to me, at least as a reader, that you want us to take away a couple of key things that we don't need a doctor. We need someone who really understands us to be able to tell us. And two of those are, it's not you, and you don't have to stay. Yeah. And I think those two important through lines are are often missing in other how to do grad school uh, books. Why were those two so important for
1: you to bring to the readers? I think um, because I, like during my own experience and hearing about other people's experiences as well, I got increasingly frustrated by the narrative that's often peddled, which is, you know, just be better, just do a little bit more, um, You know, get a little bit more sleep and you'll be able to get through this. And I think, so I guess in the structure of the book and the way that I've written it, I've written about the kind of self-care aspect of, of managing our mental health, because I think that's important, understanding ourselves and um, understanding how we interact with the world around us and what support is out there and how we leverage that is incredibly needed. But then there's also that kind of acknowledgement that the academic culture itself is challenging. That the environment that we find ourselves in can either enable us to thrive or or just barely survive. And um, yeah, so it was really that aspect of things that I wanted to convey that you know it's not always it's not always an as problem. Um, and then also really the. The aspect of the the book around the fact that you can leave if you're in one of these situations where you are finding that you are not thriving um you know there are many different pathways to making that decision to leave um but for me particularly around you know mental health i think people often think they don't have a a way out um but leaving and kind of making a decision to go and do something else can be an incredibly empowering thing for us to do
2: things you point out to us in the book are what in the us we we would call the hidden curriculum they're things that only people in the know know about and the rest of us walk around without an entire set of information people who tend to be in the know have a parent with a PhD or both parents have a PhD. They went through private schools often. They have a network system of people in the profession that they want to go into. And so there's language and skills that they've developed. And sometimes this manifests as these students who have great ease in walking up to a professor or a guest speaker and just talking to them. Can you talk to us about these sort of inequities in the system, and how those of us who are experiencing them often don't know how to name
1: them. Yeah, I think um, it's a really important point that you know we often don't have the vocabulary to express um, what we're experiencing or how we're feeling or like how to navigate. The academic system, and if no one tells you the right thing to do, um, and not necessarily the right thing to do—I don't think the right right is the right word—but <laughs> um, like the, like, yeah, how to navigate these things, that hidden curriculum, then it just becomes increasingly challenging to kind of exist in that environment. Um, and so I think you know it's one of again one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book is because. It sounds incredibly silly to me now, but I always wanted to write the book that I could give to myself um, when I was starting my PhD so that I could have some of that information ahead of time. Like, so for me, for example, um, one of the things that I really struggled with um is imposter syndrome so feeling like I was the fraud and that someone was going to figure out that I didn't belong um in some way but I didn't even know the phrase imposter syndrome so like I thought that what I was experiencing was something that was just unique to me um and so I think just like naming these things gives them some power sometimes but can also take away that power as well so like like particularly take away that holdover is where we think that it's just us and we're the only people struggling.
2: You talk to us in the book about their systemic issues. And often systemic issues are the hardest for us to recognize because they're the very system that we're in. And the only person that we truly know is us. So we blame ourselves. It must be me. I can see other people who seem to be doing fine. And you also talk to us about how fine really isn't a standard. And a lot of the almost tests people give themselves um to talk themselves out of seeking the help that they need um things like I'm doing everything right though I should be grateful I'm not sick enough others have it worse I don't deserve help
1: yeah so so I guess um yeah like I don't think I like I guess like I called the book a survival guide and I remember um talking about calling it a survival guide with people and even that caused a little bit of contention because people were like well what do you need to survive like it's it's academia it's you know there's nothing wrong there and I think that is kind of always part of the parcel as well um, as a challenge with academia is that we often don't want to talk about some of these systemic challenges that exist within academia because many of the people that succeed in academia, not all, but many people that succeed do have privileges that have enabled them to get to the places that they're at today. Um, And again, like, because academia is again, very competitive. um, One of the things that we can do is look around at those around us and think, well, um, they've got it more difficult than I have, Um, they're struggling more, or I I this 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 position was so competitive that I should just be grateful and I should get on with things rather than saying, actually, this isn't an environment where, where I can do well. Um, This is an environment which is becoming increasingly challenging for me. Um, And I think it's only by having people that can speak up Um, and say this isn't okay, that we can actually start to change things a little bit as well. Um, And I guess that with that comes the challenge of making safe spaces for people to actually be able to speak up as well, which is another entirely different challenge.
2: You talk to us in the book about the need for creating changes, and you suggest ways we can advocate for ourselves and to look for help. Can you say more about the need for changes?
1: Yeah, so... I wanted to empower individuals that are reading the book to not just think, okay, well, here is a bunch of problems that have been written down in a book and there are no ways forward um and I genuinely think that there are ways that we can change academia for the better um and so what I did with every chapter uh, is put a section at the end around what we can do better um, and things that we can advocate for um some of these things are peer-reviewed things like um actually having like peer support Uh, or mentorship has been shown to be really helpful for PhD students Um, and some of them are also suggestions based on my experience and so um, yeah really kind of like empowering people to say okay not only have I read this book. But if I feel comfortable, and I have the strength, I might be able to speak up about some of these things as well. Um, And I guess my hope with this book was not just that PhD students would read this book and but also uh, PhD supervisors, uh, principal investigators might pick up the book as well and say actually, there are some things here that I have direct influence and control over and I could implement these things um, with my position of power um, towards making change.
2: You have quotes from a number of people in the book. You've anonymized all of them for their protection and to make it safer to share what they, what they shared with you. How did you find participants and how did that process go? Yeah, so um,
1: I, I put out a survey um, uh, to, to collect anonymous participants. And I think the thing that, that surprised me the most um, was just how many people came forward. Um, and I think, you know, it was important that those, those, um, accounts are anonymized because as I say it protects people from, you know, abuses of power or, um, I, I, and I, with a lot of these things, concerns perhaps over, um, future employment and things like that, which, you know, it'd be lovely when it comes to mental health, that we could disaggregate the two so that, you know, having a mental health concern doesn't mean that someone, um, is not going to employ you or speaking up about a, an environment that you're in that was that was complicated for you um isn't seen as something that's negative but seen as something positive but i don't think we're quite there yet i think um there's still a lot of stigma around mental health um in general uh, even like perhaps even more so um in academia where you know we, we tend to just kind of buckle down and, and pretend that things are okay um, and so I'm just really thankful and very privileged that those individuals trusted me with their accounts um, and enabled me to publish those accounts in the book.
2: Were there any stories in particular that really stuck with you or sort of haunted
1: you? I gosh I, I don't think I'd want to pull one out particularly from the book or anything but I think I think it can be incredibly challenging doing work like this, where you can be so moved by someone's work or someone's account. Um, and like, it's just like, um, I say it's an incredible amount of trust put in into you for for people coming forward and, and trusting you with those accounts. Um, but also I think the thing that, that moves me probably most of all is that all of those individuals also want change. So they're moving, you know, they're contributing those things in order to bring about cultural change within academia and say, look, this isn't something that should be happening and we need to do something about it.
2: I can only really imagine how difficult writing the book was because throughout the book, you encourage us to set the book aside if we need to. You give content warnings for the chapters. And even though I'm out the other side, I have my PhD, and grad school is in the rearview mirror this brought up a lot of memories for me in reading this book um, and I was trying to imagine what it
1: was like for you writing it I'm um, trying to think about it I I think that any like it was hard work and there were moments where where I found it personally difficult to write like accounts of, of my own um, but I think that my kind of dalliance with mental illness and the place that I got to in my PhD, where I was really, really struggling. I always felt like once I came, once I've become well or, or better than I, than I was, I needed to kind of contribute this. And this, it always became a personal mission of mine to, to get it written and, you know, not everything's perfect. A lot of it is opinion, um, which I'm very open about um, at the start of the book. Um, but at the same time i knew that i wanted it out there and i knew that there needed to be something um and as as i kind of said at the start of this this podcast like it's kind of bizarre to me that i am the one that's written this book um that someone else hasn't written this book um because I always felt like it needed to be written um but I guess that's something when it comes to publishing books you, you see a gap and and maybe you have the energy to to see it through and thankfully for me I did So the
2: fact that a book like this doesn't exist seems to prove the point through the book that there's a lack of emphasis on soft skills in PhD programs There's a lack of respect for the time professors put into that kind of work if they do it, so it can harm their own career metrics if they give what's called too much time to service work, helping students, listening to their problems, advocating for them, trying to bring about um, supports within the campus, such as setting up a food bank or a, a... a clothing closet for people to get jackets. Those are things that are starting to be implemented here in the States. Um, And so as I was going through the book and reading about the places where the soft skills aren't, it reinforced the fact that there wasn't a book like this, because all of that type of labor isn't valued enough.
1: Yeah, like I, I think that it's one of those things where like, I had to come at mental health from a holistic perspective so it's not just about the self-care that you do or going to see a doctor which are absolutely vital things to do um, if you're struggling but also about this kind of like way or jigsaw puzzle in the way that you as a graduate student you fit into the university and how how you're working within it and i say those soft skills you know like whether it's doing some doing a presentation for a different department or whether it's you know doing something like a food bank or writing for your local magazine they're all things and skills that you have this sudden opportunity to do um being based at a university and so And those skills are so important because it kind of builds us up and we get to figure out what we like and what we don't like. Um, And I think so often um, PhD study is seen as like this one channel or pipeline to to being an academic. And there's so much more out there than just doing academic work and like that there's there's industry work, there's working for the government. Um, I think I touch on it in the book where, you know, the majority of PhD students are not going to stay in academia. And again, I feel like that's the the kind of unspoken thing that never gets told to us when we get recruited into a graduate programme, that the chances of us actually being a professor one day are are very, very slim. Um, And I think being honest about what comes next reduces stress because it enables us to explore what we enjoy during the PhD process instead.
2: You have a section towards the back um, on page 176 and 177 where you encourage us to start doing that kind of thinking. You call it reframing your skill sets. And it's such an amazing part of the book because it is, as you say, the parts of who we become in grad school that are not emphasized to us um, because there seems to be this assumption while we're there that we're apprentice professors. And yet, 90% of the people who get PhDs or more are not going to work formally in academia. And, but we can leave not really knowing then what we're going to do next or what we're good at. And this section on reframing your skill set really names the things that you just mastered doing As a PhD student, you learned how to learn fast, you learned how to manage large projects, you learned how to budget, um, to collaborate and make connections, to understand challenging concepts, you learned communication skills. The next section talks about transitioning from your PhD, which is another section of um, hidden curriculum that is so valuable for students and so hard to find because again, your professor often is best suited to counseling you in academic things and not things outside of academia. In the section about transitioning from your PhD, you ask people to think about their values and what part of work they enjoy, what they dislike, what their strengths are. What encouraged you or what gave you the
1: idea to put this section in? Um, So I think a lot of this is, is, you know, again, based on my experience. So I've worked in industry now for the last six years. Um, I've worked in the water industry um, and also the biotechnology as well. Um, And being able to put my skills together and, and kind of trust that I, I had the skills to be appealing enough to industry was incredibly challenging for me. Um, And so like again, empowering people to be able to articulate what they what, what skills they have, um, and how valuable those skills are, I think are incredibly important. Um, you know, now, um, you know, in the past, when I've recruited people, uh, people will think, oh, well, I'm not suited for industry, because I've got no industrial experience. And it's like, well, actually, you know, you do have experience that's directly translatable to, to this area, it's all about how you, how you write down their skills, and how you, present those skills um and again i guess it does come back to the hidden curriculum where it's just like yeah having the words and having the the understanding of how to to convey what you know which is a heck of a lot by the by the time you get to to the end of your phd
2: and that section really affirms that we know things and that we're good at things which for many people goes unspoken through the phd program you're you know you're doing well enough if nobody's mad at you (laughs) but there's there's not a lot of complimenting or affirming going on in in a lot of cases you're so right
1: like I mean the the kind of like the again I think it comes back to how competitive academia is you very rarely have someone turn around and say oh you've done a good job um it's almost like the fact that you're allowed to persist in academia means that you're enough. And again, that's not a great way to be. Like that shouldn't be we should be telling people that they're doing a good job and that they have the skills to go elsewhere if they wanted to. Um and I i don't think I don't really buy into the model of like treating people mean, um, to to make them carry on doing what they're doing. And I think people do so much better work and research if they believe in themselves and that they're confident in what they're doing um and so again i guess a lot of this is around kind of like research culture and thinking about how we um empower phd students to to go out and do research and not think so much about whether that research is in academia and whether we're we're holding on to people and and keeping them in academia um, or just training them to be the next generation of researchers and the next generation of researchers can go and do research anywhere and that's bettering society in any way, shape or form. And I think, again, in academia, we often forget that that's kind of why we're doing this, like we're doing it to make things better for the world around us. I think I probably speak for most people when I say that. And so I don't think many of us actually get into being an academic for the title. We get into it to do something new and find something interesting. But all those interesting things are related to improving the world around us in some way, shape or form. that should that should be the case in how we train PhD students too.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over thirty-five different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, protein-plus, and keto. These are two-minute meals. slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: When you were doing your research for the book, you found that one in two graduate students has a, a mental health concern while they're a grad student. It seems in the book like you attribute quite a bit of that to cultural problems, structural problems within the academia itself, that it drains people out. It doesn't value rest. It doesn't value recharging and renewing. It pushes people to such an extent that they do end up in a depleted state. But you also point out that the general population has mental health concerns as well. But academia, particularly at the higher ed level, doesn't put in supports or work-life balance and actively in times discourages them do you want to talk about this research that you found that it's so prevalent in higher ed?
1: Yeah, I think um, one of the things that surprised me um, was was those statistics around the prevalence of, of mental illness, like particularly things like anxiety and depression um, amongst like graduate students, but also amongst academics as well. Um, and I say the fact that it's, you know, around six times higher rates of things like anxiety and depression um, in graduate students compared to the general population suggests that there is something going on um, in the graduate student population, um, compared to, to, to the general population. And so, um, you know, thinking about that for a while, um, you know, I've looked at some of the literature and, and kind of like had a feel for some of the challenges that PhD students face. And like there are a couple of different theories as to why it might be higher in prevalence and you know one of them is that people that are more intelligent are more likely to introspect um and therefore more likely to be anxious or depressed about the situation that they're in um i don't necessarily buy into the intelligence iq thing i think there's a lot of issues around iq um in terms of that theory um but the you know the second thing really then is looking at the research culture and the environment that we're working in and and saying well actually that's probably the main difference between between those two two population groups, um, and you know we, again from my own experience I know that the environment is so pressurized um, and also like the number of jobs. Um, when it comes to being an academic has just changed so drastically over the years um, compared to the number of PhD positions that are being generated. And so the pressure to be more, do more, um, effectively not be human and to keep pushing and pushing and pushing um, has just increased massively. And so um, it becomes increasingly challenging for people to to just kind of live their life without academia being their whole identity. You talk in the book about the culture of acceptance
2: around struggling, and you talk about survivor bias as playing into this quite heavily as far as supervisors and program directors um, sort of dismissively saying, well, I went through it, you will too. I'm fine. You'll be fine too. Um, Can you talk about what survivor bias is and how it contributes to this acceptance of struggling instead of facing what is making the struggling amongst the students and actively dealing with it?
1: Yeah, so you you did a pretty good summary of survivor bias there, really, and a case of like someone being in a position and have have gotten there, um, and the very fact that they're in that position means that in some way, shape, or form, they've had some privileges or some assistance to get where they are or a lack of barriers compared to other individuals Um, and that's not always the case obviously we have people that manage to get to professor positions or high up in university institutions that have had huge barriers to overcome Um, but a lot of people um, because they are there already um, it means that they maybe haven't experienced some of the challenges that people that are really struggling have and so yeah it's by very the very fact that those individuals have made it in inverted commas, um, is the fact then that they the advice that they give is based on their experience of of how they went through the system. And when giving advice, they might give advice that doesn't really align to what we're experiencing, because um, they've not, they've not experienced those things in the same way. Um, And so one of the things that I think is incredibly important for for this sort of scenario is actually having uh, mentors uh, not just one mentor, but having several um, and really thinking about the support systems that we have around ourselves. Uh, and again, like people are often like, well, how do I go about finding a mentor in my field or is someone to support me in some way? Um, and the honest answer that I've got for that is is to ask people um so if you see someone that's inspirational or you see someone that you think actually this person has got some probably got some advice that i would benefit from then actually asking them um to be your mentor whether it's informally or formally can be really really helpful um, and so um and yeah it's not always having one voice as a mentor as well you can have several um giving you different perspectives to help you get through get through your work and the environment that you're in And it can be
2: helpful to have more than one mentor because people are really busy. And if you're relying on just one person, you may not be able to get an answer from them as quickly as you need or at all if they're on maternity leave or on bereavement leave, for example. Um, And you talk about the importance of creating a network and relying on a network, partly uh, to deal with what you outlined for us as the culture of isolation that so many of us go through. And part of that is because of the supervisor PhD relationship. Do you want to talk about some of the issues with the supervisor PhD relationship that you've identified?
1: Yeah. um, So I think um, probably use a line similar in the book around um, the phd supervisor student relationship either making or breaking your phd experience and for me i was very lucky and it made my experience um i think i probably wouldn't have got through my phd if it wasn't for the support of my phd supervisor um but many people have have a different um scenario there and so you know one of the things that i talk through in the book and i i guess in a very kind of black and white way is the different personalities PhD supervisors might have so whether or not they're, they're fully present all the time whether they're too busy um, or like um, you know people that are actively not being helpful um, and that leads to increased pressure as a PhD student and so um, that relationship really does make or break a PhD experience. And it's really hard to understand how someone is um, as a PhD supervisor um, if you've not had them as a PhD supervisor. And so um, we can do things like before we before we sign on to do a PhD, having conversations with our PhD supervisor and trying to understand if their work um, methods fit with ours. Um, and we might figure that out and get that right doing that but it's really only from working with someone for a period of time that you can really understand if you mesh well and things like that um, and also people put the best um, faces forward um, that includes us when we're interviewing for our PhDs but also um, PhD supervisors as well when they're trying to recruit PhD students so um, there could be things going on behind closed doors like things like bullying and harassment that you just would never know about until you got into that space um, and I think this is kind of ties back to why why I talk about people needing to get themselves out of situations if they are struggling because um you know so it's not our fault um and sometimes you know the best thing that we can do is get ourselves out of these situations even though it feels like a you know a massive deal because you sign up to do a phd and you're signed up and committed to doing that phd for several years and so um it feels like you'll never achieve your phd if you leave um, but i would say that you're probably not going to survive in that environment well with an unsupportive supervisor anyway so changing early if you can or finding someone else to provide you that support can be really helpful
2: you mentioned earlier that you hope that professors and faculty and staff will pick up the book as well and get a sense of how students are really feeling and to also see how they can do better there's a Section, section 9 has this helpful chart of understanding what makes a supportive supervisor. And when I was reading it, I thought it's helpful both for the student in trying to figure out this ongoing question we have trouble letting go of when we're a student, which is, it's probably me. Is it me? Um, and this helps you really evaluate your supervisor. But if you are a supervisor in any capacity, if you're a grad student who's in charge of a team or you're a grad student who's in charge of some undergrads, wherever you are in your supervisory journey in life, the chart on page 139 can also help you evaluate how well you're doing in meeting the needs of the people that you're supervising. So it asks things like, it's a sliding scale that you can sort of rank on, and it goes through things to, con- to consider, such as if the person is easily contactable, if they ask how you are, do they champion your success, allow autonomy, operate with respect, respect your work-life balance, provide help when asked, and give regular feedback. And while no one's going to be perfect... If you do this chart, you can get a sense if enough of your needs are being met, or conversely, if you're the supervisor, if you're doing enough of the things well enough for the people that you're helping.
1: I think, like sometimes, like as PhD supervisors as well, like you know, we might not have enough time um, to do all of the things, and turning around and saying actually. I really can't meet with you this week but you are on my mind and next week I've got the time to to come and have a conversation it's almost like just keeping people up to date and treating them with respect and treating treating them like collaborators um rather than students because I think phd phd researchers are collaborators and so it's just having that respect of just being like yeah this is this is what the situation is um and it's different today um then perhaps it would be next week um when i'm a little bit freer um when i've got through my teaching or things like that um and i guess yeah this is the thing isn't it like PhD supervisors have their own mental health um, to think about as well. And and they can't be all places at all times. Um, But it's also understanding as a PhD student that you are entitled to time, you're entitled to guidance. Um, It's not pestering someone to go and ask for assistance um, when you need it. Um, And it's okay for the PhD supervisors to set their own boundaries and say, okay, I can meet with you once a week and just being transparent about that um, is really, really helpful
2: it is helpful to have someone name the gaps. I'm going to be away for a month. I wanted to let you know, mm-hmm. because otherwise we experience it as ghosting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and that's so, so difficult to navigate, right? Because again, you think, oh, I've sent the second email to them. I'm being ignored now. I can't possibly send them another email or, um, you know, you hear about someone else who's had a meeting with the person or something and you're like okay well I haven't had that meeting and and then you start to think well this is it again exactly what you said it's like it's like a me problem it's 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 me that's the problem here um it's just that transparency and openness and well like e- even like you know I've heard people say turn around and say actually like you know, my mental health isn't in a good place right now. I'm struggling a little bit. I need to cut down on on what I'm doing as a supervisor. Um, And like my PhD students are, of course, my priority. um, But things need to change in terms of my workload and things. And I'm working on that. And, you know, in in a couple of weeks time, I think that will be sorted. And then things will get back to to normalcy a little bit. And yeah, it's that transparency and openness um, that I think we need throughout academia, that we aren't all robots and that we are people with human beings and feelings and things going on in our lives and you know we don't always have to be honest and and if we don't feel we can be when it comes to things like bereavement and and things and reasons why we might be out of the office or things might be slightly off um in terms of how we're acting um but if we can be honest about those things it just humanizes us and i think that's really important
2: you remind us in the book that there is no phd without us to affirm our right to take care of ourselves and to go, and you offer really positive and destigmatizing language around leaving. Do you want to take a minute to share that?
1: Gosh, I don't even know if I can really remember. I actually, yeah, no, I, I, there's one thing that I, I really liked in terms of the word quitting. Um, and so I think we often have a real negative connotation around the word quit. Um, But there's also another meaning, which means to kind of be set free. Um, And I just really love it as a kind of definition um, in terms of understanding that sometimes being in a place where we can't thrive um, is kind of limiting us. And so I've heard so many fantastic stories of people where they have left their PhD part way through um, and they've gone on to do amazing things. Some of those amazing things are simply taking the time to look after themselves um, and then eventually finding a career or different path for them. Um, And some of those individuals have gone back to do PhDs elsewhere as well. So just by leaving a PhD doesn't necessarily mean that that's the end of the road for you in terms of your PhD. It just means that maybe that's coming a bit later on in your career. Um, If you really want to do it, I do believe that there's often a way to find, find a way to do these things. And so... Yeah, I guess um, the other thing I would say is that you know there's a lot of support out there and I do try and talk through that in the book in terms of different options that we have before quitting becomes the only option for us. Um, and so there's a lot of university support out there. Um, and again, I wanted to make sure that I kind of named those in the book and kind of pointed, pointed people in the direct direction of those support mechanisms. Because again, if we don't know where they are, it can be very hard to access them.
2: There's so much more in the book than we had time to cover today. There's uh, bibliographies at the end of every chapter. There are charts. um, There are graphs. There are places where we can sit and reflect. There are voices of other students who've been through similar situations, sharing their stories safely in an anonymized way. There's a large discussion of systemic biases and barriers including sexism racism and ageism so there's much more in the book than we were able to cover today we wanted to cover what we could um i'd like to ask you though before we sign off what would you like to see going forward
1: (laughs) i I would it's an interesting question because like my gut feeling is just to see a complete um systematic change within academia in terms of how we how we think about mental health and how we support researchers and that's a very kind of lofty goal Um, but if i think about that and break that down further i think it is taking the smaller steps towards supporting mental health within academia so thinking about whether the support mechanisms we have in place are actually fit for purpose um having conversations with people around um you know what's working and what isn't in the academic environment and just really putting these conversations about um mental health more on the agenda um within academic spaces but not just to fill a box or to tick a box but to actually do something about it and drive change
2: and finally what
1: do you hope this episode sparks for listeners I guess, um, just to think about the human aspects of, of academic researchers and and think about, um, you know, the fact that things aren't always easy for everyone. And we can't always know what everyone's going through. But we can try and understand what some of those challenges are. And so, you know, might be people listening that have never experienced mental illness. um, And I think, Educating ourselves on some of these issues and and trying to understand is incredibly important. And I think you know empathy is one of the greatest leadership tools that we we have at our disposal, and is something we should really think about more.
2: Thank you so much for being here today, Doctor Zoe Ayers, and sharing with us about your new book, Managing Your Mental Health During Your PhD: A Survival Guide. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and this is the Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?